Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Is that true for you, Christian? And if so, why? This question, I'm afraid, has tripped up many Christians because of many made-up answers. And it trips up a lot of different people, and I'm afraid that people say this line, which is from Psalm 23, in a way almost that sort of bolsters their own courage in themselves. They face their fears, and so to speak their own daily affirmations into the mirror, they say this verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In my generation, I believe you even heard regularly people like Coolio and Tupac you would hear them quoting these very very lines in many of their songs. And there's a lot of different ways why this can trip up people, at least the answer of why we can fear no evil. Is it because if we name certain things, then we can therefore claim certain things? Is it because we think that Jesus is just going to change our circumstances, and that really is the hope? Is that... The author of Psalm 23, David, Israel's great king, is that his answer? No. Those are not the answers provided for why when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death we can fear no evil. The real answer, he says, is because you are with me. Incredible, isn't it? Here he's not thinking of change of circumstance. But he's thinking about God's presence. And that's the thing that ultimately delivers David. And for us as Christians, it is what delivers us. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32 and 33. And here we see an example of a man who walks through the valley of the shadow of death, stares his fears right in the face, and has confidence and courage at the end of the day. In this story, we see God bringing this man, Jacob, to the very brink to face his sins and his fears in order that he might find God. And in order to realize that God is with him. If you're taking notes, the outline for today's sermon, it just follows the text or the passage. Uh, Genesis chapter 32 and 33. Number one, Jacob plans Number two, Jacob prays. Number three, Jacob pushes. And we'll get to what exactly that means. Uh, number four, Jacob pleads. And then finally, Jacob praises. And if you missed that, I'll go ahead and uh, reread them as I go along. Um, but first, let's deal with a little bit of setting to catch up some of you guys who are joining us for the first time. There's some issues with Jacob's life. And in the past, what we have seen is Jacob had ran out of the land that God himself had promised him. As we know, God had promised, them, uh, promised him a people would come from his line. God had promised him a land. That's a second promise and the second blessing that comes in covenant with God. And then lastly, he promised that someone from his line would be a blessing to the nations. So we, where we pick up today, Jacob is out of the promised land. The reason why he's out of the promised land is because he had two major concerns. Number one, he feared for his life, so physical survival is at stake. 
He had ripped off his brother of a birthright, and so his brother Esau wanted to kill him. And then we also see that uh, he's concerned with the survival of his lineage. Not only is he concerned with physical survival, he's also concerned with the survival of lineage. He needs a wife to have all these children. If God is going to bless him, right? If he's going to procreate, he needs, obviously, a wife. In God's providence, as we've seen in the past, God takes care of the wife issue. Indeed, he does. Uh, many, children, many children come from, from uh, the family there that God gives him, but still, there's the problem of physical survival. Jacob eventually leaves his shady uncle's house with all of his family, and he heads back to the land of promise where God had told him to go, but yet he still has a brother there who waits and wants his head. As we begin this episode in the life of Jacob, our chapter there begins with this verse. Uh, look there in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Okay, now sometimes when angels appear to people, it's bad news. People cower in fear. They fall on their faces because they're bringing judgment. But here, when the angels appear, this is actually a really good thing. Angels are actually... Heavenly messengers, according to Hebrews 1, uh, verse 14, which uh, the Bible says there that they are ministering spirits sent out to serve God's people. So there we can expect something good to take place. And this actually isn't the first time that Jacob has seen angels earlier in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, God had given Jacob a, a vision. And what he saw was the heavens opened and, and the, a ladder from heaven was touching down on earth. And there he saw God was overseeing all of the angels going from heaven down to earth and then from earth back up to heaven. This was affirmation that Jacob was God's chosen one. And those angels were going to minister to this one. So there he eventually exits the promised land out of fear Many years back, the angels are ministering to him. And now, when he's heading back into the promised land, what do we see? We see these heavenly, angelic beings ministering to him again. So we know this is a good omen, so to speak, that God is going to work out the situation for good, even though he stares in the face of possible destruction. You ever stare in the face of fear? A bad situation? Something gone wrong. We can think of the, the practical example, which I'm sure many of us can identify with, and I myself uh, can identify with ten times. Imagine getting a speeding ticket or some sort of traffic violation, and you are due in court. I know this seems like a relatively minor situation, but you know, if a few hundred dollars is a big deal to you, then actually this is a big deal. But you're due in court, and you wonder, you're looking at this, you're looking at what's going to happen. Is it going to turn out for my good or not? Think about even worse situations. Hearing from a doctor about your ill health. Looking once again at your stock portfolio and seeing that it is crashed by 50%. Realizing once again that you have to face some sort of relational strife that you yourself have caused. Or maybe even dealing with the sins and all of its effects in your life and in the lives of others. If, if you can identify with all those types of fears, then you can identify with Jacob here. Jacob is fearing. He is in the valley of the shadow of death. 
So now as we turn officially to our outline, we, we come to point number one, Jacob's planning. Jacob's planning. Those of you who love control, right, you, you feel Jacob here, right? If you are a hoverer over your situations, over your children, over your husbands, you understand here this desire for control, this desire to plan. I mean, imagine all of the planning that goes to checking off that to-do list of don't get murdered. And it's not just a plan of how do I escape my brother so that he never sees me, right? That's, that's a little bit too easy. Here God has him going right towards Jacob. And so all of this planning here all of a sudden is what will I say and do when I actually meet the guy who wants to kill me? Jacob comes up with this plan and his first move there is to send messengers to his brother to test out the waters. So that's in verses 3 and 5. You can go ahead and skim that. I would have hated to be one of these messengers because you know that if this dude has wrath towards my master... He might go ahead and carry out this wrath on the master's servants, the master's messengers. And Esau at this time, while he isn't a, a legitimate kingdom, so to speak, he is a very established man. Later on, it, we're going to see there that he has actually 400 people that go out to march and meet Jacob and his crew. That's 400 men. So he, he, he has, clearly has power to do harm here. But by God's grace, as, as God is changing Jacob, making him into the patriarch that will own God's name, here Jacob sees that it is fitting to approach Esau, the greater, with humility. Look at what he tells his messengers there in verse 4. He says, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, I have donkeys, I have flocks, Male servants and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So you see there, he, he has this humility. He says, my Lord, you are, I am your servant. I want to find favor in your sight. And so then he sends them off on this mission to kind of test the waters. I mean, so what, as, after he sends them off, imagine what it would have been like to be Jacob. At this point in time, he has quite a large family. Uh, through his own passions, he has uh, a couple different wives. He has 11 boys and one daughter. He has male servants, female servants, and they walk. Right? They're already heading towards the land of promise, back towards the land of promise. They know that before them stands Esau. He sends out the messengers, and they just continue walking. This is not a march of victory, but a march of great apprehension that by all accounts would lead to certain death. Eventually the messengers return, which is good news, right? They're still alive. But in their return, they bring Jacob kind of this double blow that would cause anyone great, great fear. Verse 6, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. I mean, what could Jacob have been thinking at that point in time? Send me back to Laban for another 20 years of labor, or just kill me now. And Jacob and his family and their flocks, they slowly make their way, maybe dragging their feet in the desert. And while they drag their feet in the desert, here comes 400 strong, led by Esau, known for his ability to hunt and kill, and here he comes to exact revenge. 
Jacob's plan, or a backup plan there in verse 7, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one and, and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So there naturally he's just preparing for an attack there. And it's so obvious in verse 7 there he struggles with this fear, as it says. But, but get this. Even though he fears, let's not miss the fact that he actually shows great courage. In the face of being destroyed by his brother's battalion, you recognize there that God, that Jacob continues moving forward in Esau's direction? Verse 7 doesn't say that Jacob and everyone else turned back, which they could have. No, it says that they prepared for the reality of an attack. And this planning, right, it shows actually that he faces his fears and the consequences of his sin head on. Head on, just straight into it. Here he's owning his sins and sin's effects in his own very life. So if you are him, remember you're the one who has cheated your brother. You're the one who has earned this animosity towards you. And here, isn't it awesome that he just seeks to obey God's voice and deal with the consequences of his sin? I mean, that's pretty incredible. You guys know what it's like maybe to be in Jacob's situation having made a mistake in your life and then having to face the effects of it in your life? I mean, you just imagine what it would have been like for Jacob, right? Jacob has not one wife, but two wives. And those wives have servants. And he, he, through his own mistake, is now risking their very lives by heading back to the promised land and obeying the voice of God. Not only does he risk their lives, but he risks the death of all of his children. So when God promises to build a line upon him, to give him all of these people and a land for all of, his, all of those who would come from him, right here, everything is at stake in dealing with the consequences of his sin. And all of that in order to obey the voice of God. Feel the weight of that. And let it bring you back to a time where you felt the weight of your very own sin. This is a picture of the Christian life, isn't it? In order for people to lay hold of the blessings that God promises, take forgiveness of sin, one has to deal with their sin. One has to recognize the effects of sin. And then, t and then face it head on. I mean, for you Christians out there, I wonder how good you are at dealing with your own sin and its effects. You, do you want to know if you are maybe not so good at it? I mean, just ask yourself, are you currently hiding sin in your life? Are you slow to confess it to others? Maybe you feel a bit embarrassed and you let that embarrassment and that fear of man not confess it to others? Are you slow to deal with its effects? So just think about all the different, all the kinds of fallout that comes with sinning against someone in some particular way. Uh, do you steer clear of those kinds of things? Just kind of turn a blind eye and pretend they don't exist and just kind of pretend that they're never going to come up again? It's interesting that in those situations there, when, we're, when we have the option to face our sin head on, but then we choose not to, I mean, in that moment, don't we, don't we focus on the weight of sin instead of not seeing the worth of forgiveness? 
Right? We, we focus on all the things that could go wrong and how our lives are going to be messed up and all the different follow and all this pressure and, and responsibility that's going to be on my shoulders. Right? That's the weight of sin. But we don't let that be informed by the, the glory and the worth of forgiveness. Because if forgiveness is really real, then all of the stuff that i got to deal with pales in comparison then to owning the blessings that come with the forgiveness that we have in God. Now, when we deal with our sin, are there unknowns on this path? Absolutely. Does it include some degree of fears? Absolutely. But friend, what better way to lay hold of God than to cling to Him in the very difficulties that you yourself created? What better way for you to behold God's faithfulness to you than to behold His faithfulness to you even when you're not. When you do that, when you recognize that you yourself have not been faithful and you're able to own that and then say, God, forgive me, because you are faithful, then you're actually welcoming the grace and forgiveness of God. When you don't deal with it, actually you're saying no to the grace of God. Friend, God wants not just to teach you his faithfulness by being faithful to your friends, but by being faithful to you. If there are sins that you are slow to confess, slow to divulge, let me encourage you to deal with them head on. Confessing them to God. Asking others to help you in your fight against sin, but then also in your fight to confess them. Find somebody you trust. Someone who knows the gospel inside and out, and someone who will point you to the worth of forgiveness. And if you are clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will indeed find that God and His grace are greater than your fears. That they are larger than your sins. Are there consequences to your sins? Absolutely. But friends, you don't know the half of it. You realize that the reason why Jesus came to die on the cross was to bear the weight of sins. That's how weighty they are. You can't deal with them. And you can't deal with him. And so God then therefore responds by sending his son to die on the cross to bear that weight for you. Not so that you might say, oh yes, I love Jesus, but oh, I really need to do the work of bearing them my own. This is why many of us struggle with an ungodly guilt and an ungodly shame. Unable to face sin right in the face and say, God has defeated you. But yet, in the gospel, we are called to do just that. Isn't that beautiful? Frees us from any sort of ungodly guilt, ungodly condemnation and shame, where we can just own our mistakes as sinners and run to the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves us. Now, because of this, you know that in facing your sin and sin's effects, you know that there are different options. You can either steer clear away from God or you can draw near to God. Like I've been talking about going to the gospel. Uh, this is actually what we see Jacob doing here. Going to God in the midst of this threat there. This is point number two. Jacob prays. Point number two. Jacob prays. And this is in verses 9 to 12. In these verses we see Jacob doing for the first time what he ought to have been doing from the beginning. But of course many of us we can identify with Jacob in that it often takes walking through valleys for us to look to the mountains, to see where our help comes from. And for Jacob and all of us, this old, the old saying applies, 
better late than never, right? So Jacob does make mistakes, but look, it's better to go to God than never at all. And, and so look there at verses 9 to 12. I'll go ahead and read this prayer. And Jacob said, now keep in mind here this fear that grips him. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. This prayer is a beautiful one. And in fact, it is the longest one that we see in the book of Genesis. Uh, Jacob, wrestling with overwhelming fears, no doubt, appropriately opens his prayer by calling on the God of my fathers. That's what he says there. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, I mean, how fitting here is his prayer. As he fearfully walks in the valley, he's able to acknowledge that others have actually gone before. Abraham indeed walked in the valley, whether because of his own sin or because of the sins of others. He too put his family, family's life in danger when he went down to Egypt during the famine there. But yet God delivered him in the valley. Isaac and Rebekah too, that's Abraham's son, Isaac, you know, when they were experiencing this valley, desiring so much to have children and to get pregnant, yet the Lord was with them in that valley. And so in Jacob's too, God calls upon that God. God faithful to Abraham, to Isaac. Faithful to his own promises. Which is why he mentions there, God who said, that's promise, command, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. He knows that God had promised Abraham and then Isaac, promised to give you land, I promised to give you lots of people, I promised to make one from your line a blessing to the nations. And so he prays to this God. Now, we know that Jacob struggled with pride. Earlier on, he made this, this uh, he put conditions on God. He said, if God is faithful to me, then I will make you my God. Almost like he's wanting to test God. Uh, now, we could be tempted to read this prayer with that same pride being present, or we identify that pride in Jacob, but what comes next prevents us from concluding that. Here, Jacob is a changed man. God is, is making him into a man who is able to claim God, a man who is able to be the patriarch for his people, and he's a changed guy. So here, we recognize that there is a, a deep recognition that he's a recipient of God's grace. He says there, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. There's humility here. Not only because he mentions that, he is, that he's not worthy, but because of what he's not worthy of. That's what shows us that he recognizes that he's a recipient of God's grace. He's not worthy of God's workings and his purposes and in moving towards him in steadfast love and faithfulness. You guys know that this steadfast love idea is talking about God's covenant love. Where God by his own grace and in his own choosing before time sets his love upon a people, gives them promises and then says, well, no matter what you do, I will fulfill those promises because of I am good. 
because I am faithful, because I am the God of steadfast love and faithfulness, I will fulfill everything that I have promised you, regardless of what you do. This is his steadfast love here. God directing his love towards the people. God setting his love upon a people. And then God fulfilling <coughs> his love before all peoples. He is the God of the covenant. And the evidence of this steadfast love that Jacob so knows so clearly is right there. It comes right after that statement. For the reason is, with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Now, keep in mind here, he is not just looking at everything he says and says, Wow, God's given me so many possessions. This is such a wonderful thing. That's not what he's saying here. He's looking at all his huge family. He's looking at all the sheep, the droves upon drove upon drove upon drove, and he's recognizing that God has fulfilled his promises. And he's working to fulfill them continually, right? This is evidence of God's steadfast love. How do you have a lot of people come from your line if you don't have many children? How is God going to build a nation upon a people if you don't have stuff or the material wealth to build a nation upon? And so he looks at all of this evidence of God's grace and says, I'm not worthy of any of it. In fact, I even fled the promised land, and yet, Lord, you're bringing me back to it. Now, for us today, you've got to recognize that God might not necessarily fulfill his steadfast love towards you in the exact same ways. He might not necessarily bless you, necessarily bless you with hundreds of sheep, hundreds of goats, give you a kingdom. One from your line will not be the savior of the world, but yet he has given you, if you are a Christian, his steadfast love. He has pledged it to you by choosing you, by help causing you to believe and giving you the faith to believe and to behold Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's how he pledges his steadfast love to you, and then that's how he fulfills it, because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and that's where we see it so much more clearly even than Jacob himself did. So as he sees the evidence of God's steadfast love towards him, how he has acted in his grace, he prays that God would do it again. Staring in the face of of his, the, sin, the uh, sin's effects and the fears that he so is well acquainted with, he prays that God would do it again. Deliver me. Save the women. Save the children. You have promisedly, graciously promised my fathers and now me, offspring that cannot be numbered for multitude, save the mothers of the future multitude. Jacob here, he's a desperate man, right? Brought all the way to the brink and doing what only God's creation in terms of man can do. That is, pray to God for help. And he takes God's word, his promises, and he just prays them back to God. You know, unfortunately for Jacob, it takes teetering on the brink of disaster in order for him to throw himself into the loving faithfulness of God. For those who have faith in God, thank God He is always available to help. And so if you are a believer, this is for you. In Psalm 46, verse 1, it says there, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And so given that truth, He therefore calls His people to call upon me in your day of trouble, and I will rescue you. 
and you will honor me, it says there. Psalm 50, verse 15. Now, if you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, uh, I wonder, where do you go in your day of trouble? Now, I know some of you may say, well, okay, I know what you're getting at. Uh, I, I gave, I've given God a try. When I didn't have a job, I went to church. When things were going bad, I prayed, and God didn't give me a job. He didn't heal my mother, so I stopped. You know, let me just say, I'm encouraged to hear that you were seeking. But friends, let Jacob's prayer here instruct us on our attitude on how we ought to seek out this God who is our refuge. Did Jacob want out of trouble and out of the threat of death? Absolutely, right? So if you feel the threat of something, it's good to pray that you be out from under it. But what is more fundamental to Jacob's prayer than getting away from threat is the genuine desire that God would be God in his life. This is God the Lord over all, as, as we saw so clearly in the book of Genesis. He speaks and things come into existence. This is the sovereign God who created us to be in relationship with him, who owns us, and who is worthy of all praise and glory and honor and power. He's the very God who sustains all things. Indeed, all things were made for him. And that God has a plan for his people. He is a God who determined to build a people on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, so is it the creation's right to dictate to their creator what their conditions ought to be and what their desires ought to be? Ought, ought the creation say to God, I demand that you do this for me, and then I'll make you my God? It's exactly what Jacob did earlier. And we saw that there, that was a big mistake. It's interesting, it's interesting and kind of funny in a sad way how we get this in everyday life, but for some reason when we transfer it over to God and us, everything kind of falls apart. Like we get, right, the, the, the one with greater authority dictates to the one that has lesser authority. So take your employers, for example, right? If you were to show up as an employee to your CEO and say, no, I ain't filling out paperwork for five hours. Instead, my job is to create and cast a vision of this organization and not you. Right? You recognize, right? We'd all be fired there in an instant. And so it doesn't even work with human authority, but for some reason when we go over to God, we think, oh, this must work, really. I need a job, God, and you better give it to me. And if not, I'm going to kick you out of the seat. <laughs> it's humorous why we do that. Why is it that we do that? It's bizarre. So friends, God indeed is available to us, waiting to show you how faithful and how present he can be if you desire that God would be God over your life. Now, verses 13 to 20, going back to the story here. After praying, Jacob knows that the time of conflict is coming. So with God-given uh, wisdom, he plans once again. So here we're kind of returning back to point number one. And his strategy here is to avoid getting killed when he meets Esau. And what he does is he decides to bombard his potential enemy with gifts and then humbly bow before him as he recognizes, yes, you are the greater. He divides up all of his livestock drove by drove and he tells them, the servants that are with them, to walk ahead of him. And look there at 17. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? 
Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. And we see his reasoning there in verse 24. Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. This is a different Jacob. Jacob was known to be one who grasps at the heels of his brother. That's what his name actually means. Kind of he's tripping up people. He's always chasing them. Uh, But now, 20 years later, after laboring for a man who was trickier than he was, more deceitful than he was, put him through the grinder, he's learned his lesson by God's grace. God has disciplined him. And here he's happy to consider Esau his lord, happy to consider himself as Esau's servant. And this here takes great humility. He is learning to face the consequences of his sin, which, by the way, requires humility. And as he teaches him and moves Jacob, or God teaches him and moves Jacob from being a man set against others, God now makes him a man who submits to God. But as he does so, there is one thing God has determined to do next. This brings us to the next section here, point number three. Point number three, Jacob pushes. Jacob pushes. And what I mean here is this is the famous story of God wrestling. So, you know, wrestling, pushing. Okay, it's kind of the same thing. Um, It says there in verses 22 to 32 that Jacob had to face the night alone. Sorry, those verses are 21 and 22. It's interesting, right? I mean, when we're staring our fears in the face, walking in the valley of the shadow of death, Oftentimes, we experience Jacob's very own position here, facing the so-called night alone. But as the book of Genesis shows, it's often in our darkest times and in the midst of our greatest fears that God, all by His grace, makes His presence known, and in unique ways. Certainly, He does so in 22 to 32. Does God make His presence known? Yes. Is this very unique? Absolutely. In this section, what happens is that God appears to Jacob and they have what it seems to be a wrestling match. Now, this might seem a little strange for God to do. Uh, I'll get to the strangeness of the event and explain it, but let me just summarize what happens here. Jacob wrestles with God himself. uh, And and just as his strength, Jacob's strength was displayed earlier in Genesis, so Jacob's strength is displayed and he is known to be a strong man. And at one point in time, the man, Jacob recognizes God after the fact, at one point in time, the man recognizes his strength, which leads then God to put his hip out of joint. At the end of this wrestling, Jacob is left defeated and limping, asking God to bless him. Let's just look at 22, and I'll just read that relatively quickly there. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of a Jebel. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men 
and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. Okay, what is going on here? Given the timing of God's appearance, so the night before Jacob must face his fears in the face, it seems pretty clear that God in the events of the night desires to determine something about Jacob. He wants to sift Jacob. And he wants to teach something to Jacob. So wants to sift him, wants to teach him. And all of this, keep in mind, before Jacob faces his great fear. So whatever God determines to uh, deter, wants to determine of Jacob, and whatever it is that he wants to teach Jacob through this test, it will help Jacob fight the fight of faith, to walk by fi- faith and not by sight, to live a joy-filled life in dependence and submission upon God. It helps us to understand the occasion by contrasting where Jacob has come 20 years prior to where he ends up after this night. So bigger picture stuff, 20 years of what God is doing in his life. And here I think we understand what's going on. He goes from independence to dependence. He goes from being an independent, proud, self-sufficient man to being a man dependent upon his sovereign God. And this is shown in the limp. In the main, I think the events of the night highlight Jacob's transformation, independence to dependence. Big recurring theme in Genesis. In the events of the last 20 years, Jacob seemed to be a sinfully independent and proud man. Right? There is zero evidence that he gives thanks to God for even choosing him. He, God could have chosen everybody to set his promises on, but God chooses him, and Jacob doesn't give thanks for it. There's also no evidence that he was truly dependent upon God. So whereas Isaac's servant prayed to God to find a wife... When Jacob did, he did no such thing. He just went about what his eyes could see. He was walking the walk of sight. Even when God draws near to him to give him these promises, he has the gall to tell him that he was going to take him for a test drive before naming him. But after God appears to him again, testing his strength, and then at the end putting Jacob's hip out of place, Jacob emerges a humble man with a permanent limp. I mean, his very physical posture is revealing and representative of all those who have faith in God. He goes from physical strength, a representative there of self-reliance previously, to now relying on God's divine strength. This is not only seen independence to dependence, it's not only seen in the limp, but then also in blessing. Many years earlier, Jacob knew, or Jacob had known Esau, Uh, had something that he wanted. Esau wanted, or sorry, Esau rightly possessed a birthright. But then Jacob goes and steals it. But now 20 years after trial, facing his sin and its effects, now walking in the valley of the shadow of death, he realizes that God alone is the fount of blessing. And so with that same tenacity that he pursued his brother, grasping at his heels, so he pursues God, the fount of blessing. 
He wrestles with him and clings to him and says, I won't let you go until you bless me there. That's recognition that the one who has defeated him is the one who sustains him and the one who blesses him. The climax of this wrestling account is in Jacob asking God to bless him. So look again in verse 26 there. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Now here's this exercise of divine authority, right? Because naming something implies authority. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, now this is a rebuke. Why is it that you ask my name? As it haven't I already showed you plenty of times before that I am Yahweh the Lord. And there he blessed him. Strangely, Jacob asks what God's name is. And with this rhetorical question, God puts him in his place. You should know that I am, I am. And with that, Jacob names this place Peniel, which means I have seen God face to face there in verse 30, and my life has been delivered. Independence to dependence, through these various events, through this wrestling, right before he faces his greatest fear, and, and right before he thinks he needs deliverance, the greatest deliverance one can possibly have, God says, I am the one who delivers you. Your ultimate deliverance is not found in escaping death from your brother, but in seeing me face to face and living. This is Yahweh who delivers, and so isn't it interesting that when Jacob enters the night, he struggles with fear, captivated with anxiety, in recognition that he faces death, facing the consequences of his sin. But here, in the middle of the night, where there is no threat, it is just God and Yahweh. He recognizes and boasts, I have seen God face to face, and my life has been delivered. It's incredible here. The big picture, God is teaching him that there is no such thing as self-reliance. And in fact, self-reliance leads to condemnation when we kick over the throne of God, as if that were possible. But instead, deliverance comes when one submits their entire life to the Lord and Savior of the universe, the one who is sovereign over all, the one who gives and grants true deliverance. This is a message for you if you are visiting with us as a non-Christian. We recognize that there are many things that you might want deliverance from, many pressing things that weigh on your shoulders, even right now, haunting your conscience, chasing you, like ravenous wolves, even. You might genuinely need deliverance from those things, yes, indeed. But the greatest deliverance you need is what you will do when you face God. Will you have salvation that covers you and delivers you? Will you be able as an unrighteous person to face God the righteous and say, God has delivered me and so I am in favor with God? Or will you face Him on the day of accountability and say you had no deliverance? You had rejected the only one who could deliver that is Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross for sins. Friends, this deliverance, this presence of God is made known in Jesus Christ. And this here, this passage shows us that we indeed can have this salvation and this forgiveness if you would only repent of your sins and trust, believe in Jesus Christ.
and you will be saved. You will own that deliverance and, interestingly enough, be able to face all the other threats of your life with great confidence. That's exactly what happens here. Point number four, Jacob's plea. Jacob's plea. Go ahead and look at 33 verses 1 to 3. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. It's, you, feel the, you feel everything moving in the drama of the situation, right? He wakes up right after wrestling with God. He lifted up his eyes and there he sees his brother with his battalion coming, he thinks, to exact revenge. And so in this desperate situation, though knowing greatest uh, deliverance, he goes and divides his people. And then verse 3, he himself went on before them. That is, he's drawing near to his greatest fear, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. <coughs> this here is an act of humility there as he bows seven times, approaching the one who is greater, indeed recognizing his authority over him. And you would think there that Esau would go on and crush them, given that his last words were, I quote, the days of mourning my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother. But look at verse 4, it's a beautiful, beautiful picture here. Esau ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and they wept. So by the grace of God who is faithful to his promises, God, in his sovereign providence and steadfast love here, he brings about reconciliation insofar as reconciliation is possible with one who doesn't follow God. Verse 8, And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you. Because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Here he faces the consequences of his sin head on, with the help of the Lord, as he has delivered him from his greatest deliverance, so he delivers him from here his physical threat of survival. And not only does the Lord keep them alive, but God brings about this, again, this seemingly genuine rec reconciliation. Now, while we know that Esau's descendants set themselves against Jacob's descendants, the prime example being Herod the Edomite setting himself against Jesus of the line of Jacob, that is to come. But for now, there is no hostility. There is genuine reconciliation here. J Jacob tries to repay what he stole. If you notice there in verse 11, uh, this gift is no longer called a gift, but it's called a blessing. It's the same Hebrew word used to describe what Jacob had stolen earlier from Esau there in Genesis chapter 27. And then in verse 10 there, uh, he is graciously received by Esau, by God's grace. Verse 10, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. 
So this long-dreaded reunion ends up reminding him of God's grace. The night before, God was graciously spared by God after seeing him face to face. And then now Jacob sees Esau's face and he is graciously received. You know, without there are consequences to sin. Jacob experienced that for 20 years. He's the prime example of this. He knows that there is relational strife. He has a brother that wants to kill him. As God disciplines Jacob, Jacob himself learns the consequences of living a life of trickery and deceit for two decades. But Jacob learns what Abraham, what Isaac, and all those who follow Christ is to learn. That God is a God of steadfast love and He will not and does not abandon His people. For you, you might not reach such a state of reconciliation with those you have sinned against. And that's just simply facing the consequences of your sin. That's just a reality. You might there want reconciliation, confess what you have done to a person, even ask for the forgiveness, and they might not give it to you. But yet in doing so, the Lord would count you faithful. Recognize, too, that if you know that there are some sort of consequences of your sin that you need to face, recognize that God may have you walk the path of Christ instead. Nevertheless, God, just as He delivered Jesus, will indeed deliver you. You can know, indeed, that bringing your sin and its effects into the light is a very, very good thing. And this is exactly God's intended purpose in sending Christ into the world to shine light into darkness and save those who trust Him. That is His purpose, to bring out sins into the light that they might be washed away and that you might be saved. So if you are busy covering them over or just simply living in denial, aren't you setting yourself directly against the purposes of Jesus Christ? Yes, you are. So friends, in your guilt and in your shame, in your condemnation, run to Christ. You want to face your greatest fears, the consequences of your own sin, just like Jacob did? It means you must own them and face God the judge himself. But if you have repented and believed, you know for a fact that God will indeed deliver you. Let's conclude with point number five, Jacob's praising, Jacob's praising. The conclusion of this episode of Jacob's life is that we finally see Jacob praising. After this whole ordeal that has taken 20 years, finally we see him praising. And this really is the first time that we see him doing this. We've seen him make a vow to God, but putting conditions on the Creator is no sign of spiritual health. We've seen his wives at times, even in an effort to praise, name their children, uh, in an effort to praise God. So, for example, Judah means this time I will praise. But that's Jacob's wives. That's not Jacob himself. Even today, we've seen Jacob declare his unworthiness before God and pray to God that he would deliver him. That's certainly getting closer. But in this last section, finally, Jacob praises. There in verse 20, Jacob erects an altar of praise to God. And in the land of promise, this is what it says, uh, verse 20, there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. After turning Esau's invitation to journey together to Esau's land, Jacob heads to a place called Succoth. 
Verse 18, Jacob comes safely to a place, eventually, to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. Verse 19, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a hunt for a hundred pieces of money, a piece of land on which he pitched his tent, and there he erected an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. So just as there is significance of God renaming Jacob Israel, you have striven with God and with man, so here Jacob, in naming this altar, there is great significance. This name here means God the God of Israel. That's possession, right? That's ownership. Before, Jacob called God God of my father, God of the father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. But now, after this whole ordeal, having been brought to the very brink and having found God in God's deliverance, and a deliverance that therefore helps him face the consequences of his sins, he finally says, God is my God, and I belong to him. What a story. God did indeed prove himself faithful. It's exactly what Jacob uh, asked God to show, to test, or in effort to test. He did indeed become the God of Jacob, which is exactly what Jacob had vowed to him. But I'm pretty sure God had done this in ways that were far different than what Jacob initially anticipated. God, through various trials, through suffering the consequences of his own sin, there laboring 20 years for a trickster, God was teaching him dependence and trust and all that through the valley of the shadow of death. But there, friends, he found deliverance. I hope that through this you are reminded and as you face sin and sin's consequences that you indeed can have deliverance through the blood of Jesus. 